The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Samba and Tapas edition. It's Wednesday, January 4th, 2017. Loud and proud, baby. On today's show, we're talking about all movies, no despair. We're starting with uh, La La Land, the new musical from the director of Whiplash. It stars Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone as Hollywood creative strivers. It's a musical. And then Manchester by the Sea is the new Kenneth Lonergan joint. It stars Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams. Uh, we'll be discussing that with John Swansburg. Julia Turner, tell us what John's unique qualification is for this particular segment. He lives near Manchester by the Sea or grew up there. <laughs> <laughs> he has regional thoughts, I believe, that he wants to add to it. He has some regional input. He has regional thoughts, exactly. I'm from the South Shore of Boston and so can't possibly <laughs> comprehend the movie, so we needed to bring in someone from the North Shore. Also, we go. you know, astute critic, beloved guest, etc. Excellent, of course. Um, and then it's that time of year again. It's Slate's Movie Club. Um, we'll be discussing it with its doyen, Dana Stevens. Uh, speaking of which, hey, Dana. Hey, how you doing, Steve? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Dana Stevens is, of course, Slate's film critic, and Julia Turner is its uh, editor-in-chief, uh, the doyen among doyen. Um, I'm not even sure I know what the word doyen means. but um, I think Dana and I, I will own being a doyen if Dana will. <laughs> but somebody's going to correct us on the pronunciation. Like, it's got to be doyen. Yeah, oh, well, don't you know? Does it? I, I think it would be more of a wah kind of sound in French. Doyen. But as established on our advice show, we can use our English it's vocables doyen. anytime we want. <laughs> it's doyen. You are Julia Turner, by the way. I don't know if I said that. Yes, hi. Um, Hello. Happy New Year. Um, Julia, before we dig in, Happy New Year, before we dig in, I, doubtlessly there's uh, business, yeah? Yeah. The main piece of business I have for our listeners is just to tell them about our Slate Plus segment. So we were struck, as I'm sure many listeners were, by the uh, terrible end to the terrible year of deaths of artists whose work we love and cherish, and in particular, the very sad deaths of Carrie Fisher, and then a day later, her mother, Debbie Reynolds. And uh, in honor of their passing, we decided to rewatch the movie Postcards from the Edge, which is the Mike Nichols, uh, Carrie Fisher adaptation of her novel of the same name about a mother-daughter actress duo in Hollywood and struggles with addiction and uh, country songs and all else. So join us in Slate Plus to talk about uh, those women, their careers in that movie. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus. It's a great way to support Slate and the work we do to get an ad-free version of this show and bonus segments of our podcast every week. Um, so sign on up. All right. I think that's it, though, Steve. All right. Let's dig right in. La La Land is the new musical from Damien Chazelle, the auteur, the writer-director behind the movie Whiplash. This one stars Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone as young Hollywood denizens and sort of wannabes. That's maybe a little dismissive. They're Strivers, he's a jazz beau, she's an actress, both trying to get ahead in uh, Los Angeles. And the movie breaks repeatedly into song, just like we do here on the Culture Gap Fest. Uh, people <laughs> love this film. <laughs> Why don't we listen to a clip? This could never be. You're not the type for me. Really? And there's not a spark inside. What a, a waste of a lovely night. <clears throat> Say there's nothing here. Well, let's make something clear. I think I'll be the one to make that call. What's your call? And though you look so cute in your polyester suit, it's wool. You're right. I'd never fall for you at all. And maybe this appeals to someone. Else. 
heels or to any girl who feels there's some chance the romance but i'm frankly feeling nothing is that so or it could be less than nothing good to know so you agree that's right what a waste of a lovely night so that was an early courtship number in the movie that you could think of as maybe the analogy to the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers moment where they hate each other, but they dance really well together anyway. Wouldn't you say, Julia, that that's, that's sort of what the Waste of a Lovely Night number is all about? Yeah. And and I love that song because it, it um, highlights, and I think you can hear it a little bit in that clip, some of what's really charming about this movie, which is that it has very classic Hollywood-style, technicolored, bright-swirling, costumed uh, musical numbers, and yet there is something a little bit distanced and raffished and rough about the execution. I mean, everybody's great in it, but they don't sound like professional singers. They sound like, you know, modern vocal fry having people who've burst into song uh, without, you know, necessarily spending a decade in the studio tap room beforehand. <laughs> right. And they're dancing, too, in this scene. Their dancing is extremely charming, but the choreography is not super challenging. You know, they're not MGM hoofers, like, you know, jumping on top of I pianos. I feel like we could do that dance. Like, yeah, with adequate coaching, we could probably I feel like off. if we spent like an afternoon, that's probably wrong. But it, But that's the effect that the movie leaves you with. Maybe they spent months training for that dance, and that's how good you get after months if you're not Gene Kelly and you haven't been doing it for years, right? But the the overall effect is this funny combination of extremely professional musical shot very beautifully and vivaciously and energetically and these kind of loose, um, just gravelly performances at the core. Steve, I'm really curious about your reaction to this because I don't even know if you're a musical person. And it's not, of course, guaranteed that if just because someone is a movie musical person, they're going to love this movie musical. But do you, in general, like movie musicals? And did you like this one? Um, I will say that in general, I don't especially like movie musicals. I do like musicals. I, I enjoy going to see them in the theater. Um, and when a movie musical works, it's it's rapturous. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, thinking about singing in the rain relative to our uh, plus segment, you know, just one of the greatest movies ever made and something that's that's ultimately cinematic, right? That's a great example of one that had to be in, in on film, as is this. Um, this movie had me at a low. It really did. I, I can't I can't even organize my critical fac- faculties around it quite yet. It was it was infatuation. Um, I was in love with her. I was in love with him. I was in love with it. I was in love with the music. I was in love with the way it was filmed. Um, I will say that the second half is maybe not. quite quite as strong as the first, but I think it ends on a high note wouldn't be exactly the right way to put it, and I don't want to spoil it, but on a a note of um, truth, I think, and kind of panging melancholy about what kinds of competing energies there are in young, you know, people who think they want maybe to be famous or or have a creative yearning that they... um, they don't understand the costs of satisfying that yearning. And so I thought there were pockets of immaturity in this movie that also had characterized Whiplash, Chazelle's first movie. I didn't care about that at all. I think it was massively overwhelmed by a virtuosity and um, and goodwill. And and by the end of it, I, I, I really felt com- almost completely won over. Yeah, I had this very sort of kindly anti-feeling toward Damien Chazelle, the director of this movie, who's only 31 years old, and it's his third movie. 
because his his last movie, Whiplash, that you just mentioned, which wound up getting an Oscar nomination and also, I think, a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for J.K. Simmons, right? That won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance the year that I was on the jury. In other words, I was one of the five people deciding that Damien Chazelle should get that prize. And it wasn't at all because Whiplash was a perfect movie. It was completely because... You know, we were just sort of seized by the the cinematic touch that this that this person had. It was really obvious that he was someone who was gifted with a camera and who would do interesting things in the future. And so, so for his very next film to be something as ambitious as a big cinemascope musical shot on film, sort of old school, and to have it actually work and take off makes me feel sort of proud. Like I, I helped Damien Chazelle on his road. Wow, that's so sweet. Can I throw a glass of cold water on on you infatuated uh, yes, puppies? Yes, because this I know this movie has lots of haters, so we need to get a little hate into this segment. Haters. Oh well, no, God. no, no. Hate, hate, hate is way too strong a word. I feel actually very um, more like Mark Harris, uh, the wonderful critic who said he he doesn't. It wasn't one of his top ten films of the year, but it was one of his top twenty five. I think this movie is extremely charming by the sheer unlikelihood of its existence. And it sort of plays that unlikelihood for um, cinematic delight and surprise throughout the film. I think that's what I was getting at in the in the constant contrasts of a beautiful Technicolor musical number, but it's happening on a like gross, congested L.A. overpass or, um, you know, a kind of classic antagonistic soft shoe but the lyric, what a waste of a lovely night, which you can imagine being an old school lyric delivered in this kind of modern, like walking out of the party, looking for the Prius scene. Just the juxtapositions of it are so unlikely. And that unlikeliness is so fun that it's a very enjoyable night at the movies. Like I would highly recommend that everyone go see it on the big screen and get there on time. Because as Julia knows, she happened to get there late and then had to catch up with the opening number later. But the opening number is a huge part of sort of getting into the spirit mm-hmm. and the mood of this yes. movie. Would you not agree? Totally. The opening number is great. Get there on time. Don't be late um, like I was and then have to beg Dana for a screen afterwards. So you can... <laughs> I only have one. I can't send it to every listener. Um, but uh, but I didn't. it's not that I didn't. Like my issues with the movie don't stem from not having been completely caught up in it because I missed the opening number. Like it's it's very enticing and delightful and charming. But I feel that it starts to collapse a little bit when you think about it too hard. Um, I feel that the performances at the core of it are fantastic. Like Emma Stone is wonderful. I think Ryan Gosling walks on water. Like I think he is so great. I know that nobody in the world likes the nice guys as much as I did, but I think that was another fantastic comic LA performance from Ryan Gosling last year. I'll have you know that I just wrote a movie club entry in which I praise the nice guys. It's just like a, a good, funny comedy, something that doesn't try for anything better than just to be dumb and goofy and it funny. It was so good. It was he's so, a great comic actor. I, I like him better comic than dramatic. Me too. Me too. And he's wonderfully comic in this role. He's The, the character is written as sort of a pompous twit, but he, he makes him much more sympathetic than I think the writer of the character gives him much reason to be. Um, But I don't think the songs are very good in this musical. I don't think they're particularly memorable. I don't think the lyrics are particularly sharp. You don't have those jolts where a particular pairing or a couplet or the rhyme or the unexpected lyrical turns that being a song require a writer to make help set off sparks or moments of excitement. Uh, in your mind. And it's not just that we've all been listening to Hamilton and been thinking about a very good musical a lot recently. Like, the, I just think the songs are a little flabby, um, and, both musically and lyrically. The plot, which is basically 
two dreamers have dreams and they also dream of loving each other and can they pursue their dreams and also their dream of loving each other at the same time? Okay, fine. But there's kind of a climactic number where Emma Stone's actress character uh, gives a powerful audition and sings a song um, that frankly struck me as just ridiculous, like it mm-hmm. as like a terrible song. And it's supposed to carry all of this heft in the movie. And I think it's cliched and not cliched. And I was like, maybe the cliche is the point. And it, was, it didn't work for me at all. Yeah, as a song, mm-hmm. that's one of the weaker songs. And even that moment when they sing the We Don't Like Each Other Yet soft shoe dance that we heard a bit of, I mean, the song itself is not what stands out. It's it's their ability to carry it off. Just as Emma Stone manages to convince us that she's having an incredible audition with that song, even though the song itself is not something you would necessarily mm-hmm. put on. I wouldn't put the soundtrack to this movie on right. to drive down the, uh, no. the L.A. highway. But I will say that even though I acknowledge every criticism of the soundtrack and the dancing, and Mark Harris, for example, saying that he doesn't like how Ryan Gosling looks at his feet when he dances, which I'm sure is true. (laughs) Even though I can acknowledge all of those flaws, I've seen this movie three times and I did not get tired of seeing it. It's flow, I guess. I mean, I just think Chazelle has a real way of telling a story. There's a little bit of slackness in the second act, but that final number, Steve, I think you'll probably agree with me. You just stepped out of watching it. That last long 15 or so minute number that turns into kind of an MGM dream ballet that takes place in this strange space that's not the real space of the movie, but is sort of the psychological space of the lovers, you know, um, longing for each other is just breathtaking. It's cinematically breathtaking, I think. And the way, I'll leave you to, I won't give too much of it away, but the way that he incorporates motifs and scenes from earlier in the movie into this kind of temporal yes. swirl at the end is yes. just is just breathtaking. Yeah, I agree. It's this amazing psychic wormhole. Um, don't want to give anything away. But I, I think the way to look at this movie, Julia, is Americans virtually invented a certain kind of muscle and then we worked it to perfection in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, up even maybe into the 60s, better than anybody, which was the, you know, not just the musical theater muscle, but the song and dance muscle, the vaudeville muscle, the American songbook muscle. Um, and that muscle has done nothing but atrophy for 50 years. I mean, not nothing but atrophy, but um, with exceptions, essentially, it's just no longer considered a primary, even popular, you know, art form. Once you're okay with that, right? Um, not having the songs carry it didn't matter to me because what I felt carried it was atmosphere and incredibly sharp um, script. I thought the dialogue was terrific. Um, And so a lot of the wit and the verve, it's almost inverted in this film, comes from uh, their non-song and dance interplay with one another. And then, as we've often talked about at that moment where a musical... Uh, goes from being a dramatic piece into a kind of dream psychosis where people have to sing in order to express what they're experiencing. I was already I was brought so far along um, that I was able to kind of rapture along along with them, even though on analysis, right, this is not classic American songbook material by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, Steve, the only thing I would add to that is that, you know, the hardest thing about making a movie musical, and I think, for example, Rob Marshall, who directed the Chicago adaptation, which won an Oscar, even though it was a terrible adaptation of a musical, he didn't get this right, and Giselle manages to get it right, is is overcoming that basic um, resistance that we have to the idea that, uh, as you say, in collective psychosis, people would just burst into so- song and somehow all know the steps and all know the lyrics. And it's it's getting that to go aloft, right? It's getting that conceit to take off. That's the most difficult thing about making a movie musical, whether it's an adaptation or like this one, an original movie musical. And the fact that Chazelle gets that right lets me mm-hmm. forgive him so many other missteps. Yeah. And I actually think the 
roughness of their performances is part of what makes it work. It's part of what makes it feel plausible is that they seem like real people bursting Mm. into song, which Mm -hmm. you'd think would make it seem less likely somehow, but they really feel like us, kind of. Like they feel like they just checked their phone and then they burst Mm -hmm. into song. They don't feel like they came out of some magical studio chief's head. And, you know, I think when we look back on this movie – in in a few years, whether it wins the Best Picture Oscar or not, it feels like there's a moment of modern dreaming around L.A. right now that's modern and, you know, a little jaded and wised up maybe compared to what you would have tried uh, 50 years ago. But uh, I don't know. It, it seemed it seemed like a yeah. bit of a document in that way. It's super idealized, but it's not totally disconnected. It's L.A. and Lala. There we go. There's our button. Wait, Steve, before you button the button, <laughs> unbutton it for one more statement just to tease the uh, movie club segment we're going to have later. Un- unbutton, baby. <laughs> not All too you. far down. <laughs> that um, I just wanted to add that Amy Nicholson, who is the one critic in movie club who's in L.A. and I believe of L.A., didn't like that aspect of of La La Land. She feels like the L.A. that it sees is this romanticized New Jersey kid's vision of L.A. that he doesn't really understand the city, for what it's worth. Okay, fair enough. The movie is La La Land. Um, We're not super split on it, but maybe enough fancy enough that we'd love to hear what you think, and and not just one side or the other, or Julia, at least. Um, I loved it. Um, Check it out. New from Damien Giselle. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought about it. Okay, moving on. Manchester by the Sea shows us the brutal aftermath of a brutal loss. It's a movie filled with keening and uh, very internal silences. These are carried heavily in the person of Casey Affleck. It follows him through the low affect afterlife as he suffers from a very profound grief. I don't want to give too much away. The movie doesn't until about midway through. Um, But it does concern his decision uh, on whether or how to take possible guardianship of his adolescent nephew. The movie is from the imagination of Kenneth Lonergan. He wrote and directed it. He's, of course, the playwright and filmmaker. Uh, This is our youth, incredible play. And uh, unfortunately, not countless other things, all too countable other things, all of which are gems, really. Um, The movie stars Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams and Lucas Hedges. In the clip that we're about to hear, we hear um, uh, Casey Affleck and uh, Lucas Hedges arguing with a third party over a boat that Lucas Hedges has inherited from his father and whether or not to keep it. Um, But really, it's a discussion of uh, who's going to keep Lucas. Things are a little bit up in the air. No, I I can take care of it as far as the general maintenance is concerned, but that motor is going to go at some point. I'm taking care of it. There's no allotment for a new motor. Unless, George, you know someone wants to buy it. Wait a second, I'm not selling it. We're going to be in Boston anyway. What?! Since when are we supposed to be in Boston? Just take it easy. Well, whatever you decide, it's going to bleed you dry just sitting here. We don't, we don't know exactly what we're doing. Well, you know, he, he can always stay with us if he wants to come up weekends. Do you want to be his guardian? Well, he doesn't want to be my guardian. For Christ's sake, got he's got four We're trying to lose kids. some kids at this point. House? No, yeah. I, I, we're trying to work out the logistics. We're so I don't know. Pretty good, but Jesus Christ, we're, we're, we've always got a sofa George, for him anytime he wants. George, George. You know that, right? That's all right. He, I know. I know. He's that. welcome anytime. I understand. I, I know. Thank you. For the following segment, Dana, I can't wait to turn to you and talk to you about this movie, all of you, really. But um, but first, let me introduce John Swansburg, who, of course, is deputy editor of Slate.com. John, tell me why you're on this show for this segment. I am Slate's uh, Cape Ann correspondent. 
<laughs> having grown up in Beverly, Massachusetts, which is uh, one town over from Manchester by the Sea. And in fact, some parts of this uh, film were shot in Beverly and take place in Beverly. Yeah. And there's also a crucial scene in the movie in which there's a heated debate about how long it takes to drive from Quincy, which is one town over from Milton, <laughs> where I grew up, to Manchester by the Sea, which is one town over from Beverly, where John grew up. So we clearly had to have him on just because I was like not – I was too far from the locus of the film to properly weigh in as the message. Did they accurately <laughs> estimate the driving distance? It's definitely closer to an hour and a half from Beverly to Quincy than 45 minutes. Uh, I think it's squarely 60 minutes. I, my, my grandparents uh, were lived in Quincy. My mom grew up there. And so I've done that drive a lot. Now, Manchester's a little bit further north. It's two exits north of my house. Um, it all depends on the traffic, of course. Legend, you know, we're talking post-Big Dig, pre-Big Dig. You know, it's oh a, my God. they have a boat. Look, not, you know? It's not that I couldn't sit here for 45 minutes <laughs> listening to you two touchstone the authenticity of this movie, but I'm going to turn to Dana Stevens and uh, treat it as an aesthetic document for a couple minutes first. Um, Dana, what uh, would you make of Manchester by the Sea? Oh, I love this movie. Love it, love it. I'm so happy we're having a chance to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, to characterize what I think is unusual about it and special about it, it does have to do with the richness and breadth of this movie's world. I mean, you described the relationship between the Casey Affleck and Lucas Hedges character, which I guess is the central one, the uncle and nephew. But there's every character in here, including the smallest one, gets some kind of texture, some kind of background, some kind of scene where they get to be their own difficult, contradictory self, including Kyle Chandler as the deceased brother mm-hmm. who you, yes. you meet in flashbacks, and Michelle Williams, who plays Casey Affleck's yes. ex-wife, who has some incredible scenes as well. And uh, I mean, and just and just every bit player, right down to Kenneth Lonergan, who always does a cameo in his own movies. So if you know what he looks like, he's sort of a big, stocky, bearded guy. There's a little moment that he pops up for a line as well. But yeah, this world just feels so richly built from the ground up that I feel like the tears that it wrings from you are all 100% earned. I thought this movie was excellent. I thought that the characterizations of the humans in it felt so rich and dense and real. And I was glad that it existed and its representations of Boston area suburbs insofar as I can hope to understand the northern ones coming as I do from the southerly ones uh, struck me as a part of the authenticity that made the movie so strong. I also felt like the Kenneth Lonergan is known as a man with a knack for excellent and realistic dialogue, but this movie has a lot of silence in it. There's Casey Affleck plays a wounded and grieving person who just silently does a lot of stuff. And there's an extraordinary opening sequence where we see him um, tackling all the chores of his daily tasks. And he, his ability to act through chores to like convey character through the physical doing of chores is so extraordinary. It's one of the most extraordinary pieces of physical acting I think I've ever seen. It's just beautiful. The whole thing is beautifully made. And I think in terms of the tears it rings from you, the story is about grief and grieving and, and how to move on from things and whether you can move on from things and whether you even should move on from some things. The one thing I'm interested to talk about with you guys today is I've seen a couple of people describe it as a as a play on melodrama as a genre, not a play on, but as sort of a, a a melodrama, but one that's executed so dexterously that it takes away the the things that you think of as negative in calling something melodramatic or a melodrama. Like I feel like I don't really understand 
what that genre is for, what the point is of a movie that just tries to make you fucking cry by being so miserable. Uh, and I'd be curious to chat a bit more about why this movie is doing that and what it means that it's doing that. Mm. How to put it, I could almost could not have admired the movie more. I'm a huge fan of Kenneth Lonergan. I lucked into seeing This Is Our Youth when it was on Off or Off Off Broadway with Ruffalo, who I'd never heard of, never heard of Kenneth Lonergan, was floored. Um, and I'll follow... Lonergan and his dialogue, his way with dialogue and characterization anywhere. Uh, loved the performances. Uh, loved the look and feel of the movie. He's become a very deft uh, filmmaker. I don't know that I connected with it enough. And and as a way of describing why, I, I feel like there are two really dominant terms in Hollywood bullshit um, right now. One is world building, which gets a funny jab poked at it in La La Land. And the other is specificity, which I just feel like is cropping up over and over and over again. Um, specificity is like this thing that you deliver in more self-consciously wrought arty films, which um, are completely specific to the experience of the characters therein. So in other words, they're finely drawn, they're sharply drawn, they're real, they're true to life, whatever. I actually thought this film suffered um, from from over specificity in a way. I mean, I think, you, you know, it's not that I wanted it to be like Bunyan-esque in its powers of allegory, but a very, very specific thing happens to this person that made my ability to understand what I was learning about his experience quite limited. And I struggled to do it because I, 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 I love everybody involved and I love what everyone involved in it brought to it in order to build out the specificity of this world. But anyway, John, it's time, I think, to talk about uh, Quincy <laughs> to Boston. Wow. I mean, you know, you know that's, that's bad. One of this, one of this movie's do, virtues is that it does not truck in really bad Boston you're not accents. Doing that, you're not doing that drive in 60 you're minutes. You're doing like a British version of Mayor Quindy? Like, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Please edit that out, John. I want to know what you think of this movie and then I want to hear you talk about its authenticity. Uh, sure. Well, I'll just respond to what you said uh, first because I, I I share some of your reaction, and I think um, part of it is that what I, what I found to be kind of radical about this movie, and maybe this speaks a little bit to what Julia was saying about melodrama too, is that it's not a film about the human spirit overcoming all odds or or sort of finding some closure uh, in grief. It it uh, I don't think it's giving away too much to say, to say that the Casey Affleck character never really is able to. Um, uh, make himself whole after the grief that he suffers. And it's, it's I think, very strange to see a film where you don't have that arc of like, oh, you know, you, if you watch a trailer of this movie, you think, oh, okay, like he find like he suffers some loss, but he finds in this young, this like spunky young man uh, a way back to the, the person he used to be and everyone ends up happy. But that is not the trajectory of this film. Um, and I think that is that is a, uh, something that's kind of radical about it and, and part of its greatness. But to your point, Steve, the the trauma, the loss that Casey Affleck suffers is so egregious that it takes away a little bit of that radicalism because you're like, well, yeah, no one could come back from that. That was really bad. Uh, if he had just if he was just coming back from something that was a little bit more like the kind of loss that you that any viewer could bring uh, to the to the film. I don't know. It might have been even more um, shocking. Wow, I don't I don't really get that at all. I mean, I guess even the term melodrama seems I, I've heard it tossed around by some critics in relation to this movie, sometimes pejoratively, sometimes not. I mean, first of all, it doesn't seem to me that melodrama should have to be a pejorative category. But isn't melodrama about sort of uh, extreme over identification with the suffering of a protagonist so that you sort of the viewer takes on the suffering and experiences this 
sec, you know, symbolic catharsis or something. I, I don't think that that's what this movie is after at all. As John just expressed, it's not a melodrama. It's a tragedy, right? right. It's like, is King Lear a mel- melodrama? No, it's just a, a, a piece of art that sort of opens up the suffering of the world and shows it to the audience, you know? And I, and to me, that's where, what this movie kind of traffics in as well. And even musically, you hear that on the soundtrack. Like, I love Lonergan's use of music, classical music in this movie. Yes. And he has this gorgeous, gorgeous and very familiar. It's been used in many films in the past by Orson Welles, including, I think. But he has this piece by Albinioni that plays at the moment of the revelation, sort of flashback to the thing that Casey Affleck is so fucked up about. And, uh, and it's a transcendent moment in the film, I think. And I can't imagine wanting to soften it by saying, I wish the thing that was happening to him wasn't as bad so that I could identify with it I don't more. Th- but I don't think that that's the complaint. And Dana, the the key is your use of the word tragedy. I don't think it's a tragedy. I think that's the problem with it. Tragedy, you know, going back to 2,000 years has to do with the revelation of uh, inexorable or, you know, kind of fate-locked character, character flaw as it plays out inevitably in the real world. Um, and there's a revelation of that character over time. There's something very, I think, purposefully, I mean, I do think it's the probably the source of the actual strength of the film, very stillborn about this movie, very still and very stillborn. Lonergan is essentially saying there's no motion here. There's going to be no motion from to, I'm not going to give you a I'm not going to give you a Hallmark card. I just refuse to do it. And that's fine, but that doesn't strike me. It's neither tragedy nor melodrama. Julia, what is this movie? Oh, now you're asking me to be the genre expert, and that's just <laughs> terrible. But I would I would challenge the notion. I mean, first of all, I just wouldn't change a hair on this movie's head. Like, it's so powerful and and beautiful and horrible. And I, I'm sort of puzzling over it, not in a spirit of critique or second guessing, but just in a spirit of like, what does it mean that I went and wept? Like, what was that for? And what was that about? And I would challenge your notion that it's about change being impossible because it, he he's not redeemed at the end. He's not like tussling the teen's head on the sofa and like full of good feelings. And there uh, there's like a comely lass in the corner where you think something may blossom. Like it's not that movie, but there is change. And I this makes the movie sound more ham-handed and literal than it is, but there's like a thaw. There's a slight thaw. Uh, and there's a lot of shots of Beverly ice flows or Manchester ice flows. And, and, Gloucester, I think. And, and the movie ends in, <laughs> in springtime. I knew it was a good idea to have John on. Um, and there's just a slight opening to human connection, both connection to the nephew who the relationship between the two of them is so wonderful. You don't really see that kind of relationship on screen, that's another thing that I think is wonderful about the film. Like, they're both fuck-ups and they're both striving to to help each other through this shitty loss. And they they kind of take care of each other and knock each other around a bit. And it's beautiful. And there's a bit of a thaw there. And there's a bit of a thaw in just letting other people help him, which... Uh, is part of it too. Like there's some burdens that you just have to carry that are just going to be awful forever. And yeah, I feel like it's about incremental survival in the end, which is not uplifting, but it's but it's also not you know it's not a terrible void you're staring into at the end of this movie. And all that comes out. We haven't really talked about like where all of these ideas and feelings and sensations come from. From Lonergan's writing is just amazing. I mean, this script is so incredibly dense. So the way that you hear the dialogue overlapping in that clip that we played is pretty much how the whole movie proceeds. Um, and then there's always a sense that everybody's words, although they're tightly scripted by Lonergan and apparently he doesn't really encourage improvisation on the set, 
always feel like they're just pouring out of that specific character's mouth because that's what he or she needs to say. That's how I felt. They never seem to be mouthpieces for some idea. They seem to be like individuals coming up against each other in the real world. There's there's a great scene toward the end between uh, Casey Affleck's character and his and his nephew where I think it's demonstrating some of the warming that you were talking about, Julia, where he's sort of saying, oh, I'm going to get this apartment in Boston and I'm going to try to get an apartment that has two rooms, not the one room I've had in Quincy. Uh, and it's clear that what he's saying is I'm getting two rooms because maybe you'll come stay with me sometime. But he doesn't want to actually say that because these are these wonderful working class uh, Irish um, Catholics uh, in North Shore Boston who can't actually say nice things to one another. They can only rib one another. That's how they express um, sentiment, uh, even sweet sentiment. And he's sort of like the Patty, the, the nephew knows that that's what his uncle is saying, that he's he's sort of doing this nice thing for him, but he won't. He can't say it, and they start ribbing one another about their, you know, the fact that uh, he's like, "Well, why are you get that second room? What are you going to do with the second room?" And he's kind of beating it out of him, and uh, and it's just a really wonderful, sweet, uh, sweet moment. And it's sort of, I think, it's a great example of that, of that writing and the the sort of specificity in the right way, but also just like you said, Julia, there's this, there is this moment where they're coming a little bit closer. It's incremental. It's not like a big warm hug, but it's something. Look, I, 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 I cannot tell you how much I admire what everyone brought to this. Um, it just, the intensity of it excluded me and that made me start to worry it was self-serious. It, it's a perfect companion piece to La La Land. Can we just add that it's funny though? Didn't you guys laugh in many scenes? It's extremely funny. Yeah. And I think yeah. like one of the, re- the thing we didn't get to talk as much about the uh, tracking shot of 128 that's woefully wrong, uh, but as I would have liked. But uh, one thing I thought it did really get is just the way that the people in that neck of the woods talk to one another. And, and a huge part of that is humor, um, the banter between all the characters, but specifically between Affleck uh, and, and his nephew is just it's, it's really hilarious. Uh, and those moments give the uh, give the film this um, much needed moments of levity to kind of keep you going because of, of its dark uh, darkness at its heart. It's great. Go see it. Don't listen to Steve. Oh, no, no. I'm telling people <laughs> to go see it. Look, I, I, I want to end on this unequivocal note, which is I think Kenneth Lonergan is a genius of American stage and film. I thought everyone's performance. Uh, Kyle Chandler in particular, uh, Michelle Williams. I, I just thought they were, it's, a, it's it's an extraordinary movie that did not move me the way it was supposed to, and that's on me, not it. So go see it. It's called Manchester by the Sea. It's directed by Kenneth Lonergan. Stars Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams. We were joined by John Swansburg, deputy editor of Slate.com. John, it's always a pleasure to have you on, even when you're wrong. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks, John. Sure. I had all these statistics about Manchester by the Sea's per capita income that I didn't get to, but I'll leave it to you guys. <laughs> Their uh, principal export. Yeah, well, there is like one kind of thing that's kind of crazy about this movie is that like they Manchester by the Sea is like the eighth richest town and the like, yes. third richest state in America, and like the only glimpse you get of that is the Lonergan cameo where he comes in and he's sort of the what, what, guy. what my dad calls a hump face mm-hmm. and, you know uh, wearing his Canada Goose jacket. But the you know the rest of the time you're left to think like Manchester by the Sea is Gloucester. Um, wait, what's a hump face? <laughs> a hump face is like, you know, like, um, I think, I think he came up with it because he wanted to call them a fuck face, but they, but he didn't want to say that in front of me when I was a little kid. <laughs> Basically like a blue blood, you know, the, the people of like John Updike's North Shore, who my dad hated because my dad was like a working class guy who muscled his way in there. So actually the perfect distance from the North Shore to watch this movie from is the South Shore, actually. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, fishermen up there. It seems right. right. <laughs> it is kind of weird, like, to the specificity point that, like, he, they chose... I like, can't figure out why they chose Manchester by the Sea. I think maybe it's just because it's called Manchester by the Sea. The name. And they yeah. didn't... That was, like, circa Yeah, why didn't they just call it Gloucester? Right. Gloucester. It should have just been Gloucester. 
Um, <laughs> and Manchester by the Sea only started calling itself Manchester by the Sea in like 1989 because they didn't want to be confused with like the well, post-industrial see- Manchester in New Hampshire. You seen Gloucester yet? <laughs> oh my God, never. All right, we got to stop. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. wouldn't have worked. That's a movie for the hump faces. Oh my God, take it away. That's like some sort of really bad, I don't know, TV sitcom Brooklyn cabbie. <laughs> really? Because from inside my earphones, it sounds like I'm fucking nailing it. He's fucking like the faces. Kennedys. In his Get off of my mind. show, Swansburg. Get off of this show. Oh my God. In a world where there are many, many bad Boston accents, that is just one of the worst I've ever heard. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> all right i have to admit um i love the movie club um and i dig um dana's uh pied piping of it um, but i don't really have an intro for it i'm gonna throw it over to julia turner to um get us into it well movie club week is my like favorite week of the year it's late i'm not sure dana knows this but the movie club featured heavily in my job application to Slate. It was the first thing on Slate that I loved. I just love it. I love it. It's 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 peak Slate. It's smart, convivial people convening convivially uh, to discuss art and meaning and life in the world. And uh, yeah, so you've you've collected a, a bunch of wonderful critics this year, as every year, and you're tucking in to the year in movies. So tell us the highlights. Tell us the big debates. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm very honored to hear that. And it's now in the post-Edelstein era, you continue to follow and love Movie Club. And it's my favorite work week of the year, probably. I don't know if it's better than a week on vacation with your toes in the sand, but it's my favorite work week of the year because there's no new input. There's sort of like you get to go back and revisit and sort of chat in a casual mode and you can have spoilers and it doesn't sort of have all that rigidity around it that a review does where it has to be timely and it has to be pegged to a movie that was just released and it has to not spoil anything. All of those rules are out the window and it really is sort of hanging out with some critic friends and just shooting the shit about the movies of the year. And we got a really good lineup this year. I was really happy they could all do it. It's Amy Nicholson who writes for MTV now. She was formerly The Village Voice. Bilga Abiri who recently moved from New York Magazine to The Village Voice, and Mark Harris, who's not a critic per se, but is a film historian, industry analyst, and somebody we often talk about. If He's not the most reasonable on the man show. on Twitter, is how I think of him. He's he just- is also, yes, he is a fabulous tweeter. And if you're on Twitter, follow him at Mark Harris NYC because he's a great analyst of, of, of anything, of yeah, the but Oscars, no, all, of pop he's culture. Always, but he's particularly reasonable. Like he just always has like a sage tempered view. Yeah, he is a great balance to the three of us who are all about, you know, cramming movies into our head all year, whereas I feel like he has a longer, broader sense of of film history and more of a kind of glimpse into industry analytics and things like that. So his posts have been great so far. Um, So what do you guys want to know about Movie Club this year? What are the big fights? What have been the biggest fights Uh, so far? Exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we we haven't really had something to to differ on hugely yet. I tried to get a fight going about La La Land because I knew that Amy didn't like it and had sort of a mocking reference to it in her her top ten list. But then even she was sort of willing to concede that it it, it has its charms and was just more down on its inaccurate portrait of L.A. What else have we got to fight about? I just brought up L in a in a post that hasn't been responded to yet, and L is a movie that I hope we have a fight about on this show as well. The Isabelle Huppert. Paul Verhoeven collaboration. That's this very, very strange and hard to read story of a rape survivor and the various revenge fantasies that she embarks on. I don't want to give away any more than that, but that is sure to be a fight. Um, but so far, yeah, so far I wouldn't say one has really cropped up. Okay, well, what's the movie that you personally have undergone the biggest reconsideration of, either just in thinking it through again at the end of the year or in uh, responding to what your interlocutors have proposed? Well, for one thing, Amy Nicholson's enthusiasm for Swiss Army Man, which she put on her top 10, 
has made me finally convince myself that I should see it. And at some point during this week, I'm going to watch my DVD of Swiss Army Man that's been sitting around all year that I've been putting off watching in part for a really stupid reason, which is just that Daniel Radcliffe plays a corpse in it. And apparently he's some kind of animated corpse or Paul Dano projects the idea that he's animated. But anyway, somehow the idea of like Harry Potter's dead body being a character (laughs) in a movie (laughs) just really freaks me out when I'm right in the middle of reading through all the books and watching the movies with my daughter. So essentially just because I'm scared of seeing a dead Harry Potter. I have not yet fired up Swiss Army Man. But the fact that she took it so seriously and that she put it, although it's a comedy on her top 10 list, oh, one of the, not fights exactly, but one of the uh, the big themes we've been talking about is comedy and why it is that at the end of the year when people start weighing the movies that really matter, comedy often plays such a small part, right? It's very rare for a comedy to win an Oscar or for it to be talked about sort of along with the serious movies of the year, which is why, for example, the Golden Globes and some other awards have a separate musical or comedy division. It almost seems like the movie club needs to have that. You know, we need to have some special reserved place to talk about comedy because it tends to get tamped down by movies like Manchester by the Sea that have this apparently larger moral import. What are what were the best comedies of the year? I mean, we differ wildly on those. Um, Amy loved Swiss Army Man. She and Mark Harris liked Popstar, which we eviscerated on this show. Yeah, there was a little pro pop star, which I may have to smack down a a wee bit because anybody who can sort of say that La La Land doesn't work as a musical, but then endorse pop star, which is a movie in which I feel even the good songs, some of the song parodies are quite good, just don't fit in narratively with the movie and that sort of stop it and, and weigh it down. The comedies on my list were mainly movies that we've either talked about here or that I missed a conversation about here, including Love and Friendship, which is one of my favorite movies of the year. And I missed you guys' conversation on oh, it. Oh, you were you were out for that one? I've forgotten about that. Yeah, that I was delighted to see that on your list. That movie has held up. I mean, you watching your sort of like, I've seen a lot of Jane Austen movies. I generally like Jane Austen movies. This was another good Jane Austen movie. But you're right that it's Wit Stillman-ness gave it a particularity and freshness. Yeah, I just feel like it pulled off this this very high degree of difficulty cinematic feat, which is, you know, a literary adaptation that feels lively and fresh and that feels sort of, um, that seems to be condensing the modern and the old together, you know, in in some sort of convincing way. And it's full of great performances. Kate Beckinsale, who is always an actress who has left me completely cold, like wet towel, do not care about Kate Beckinsale, (laughs) totally carried that movie. Yeah. Yeah, I also It also pulled out the... The tartness, like usually Jane Austen plots are um, a swoony romance about which acerbic social commentary swirls. And this one just kind of cuts out the core and is just tart, tart observation all the way through. Uh, And that makes it feel fresh, too. Yeah, it it has this wonderful catty, campy kind of I don't know. It's it's, it's just a, a pure verbal pleasure. And that actor, Tom Bennett, who I had never seen before, the guy who plays the dumb visiting rich lord who doesn't know what peas are. It's just fantastic. I mean, that's just, there's these flights of silliness in that movie that don't come from Jane Austen, that just come from the weird imagination of Whit Stillman. Agreed. And and the, and the unfamiliarity of the source material, his clever repurposing of it, it just was a ter- ter- like just terrific set of choices all the way through. Dana, very quickly, I do have to ask you a question. How do you guys deal this year with the glaring absence of a Magic Mike movie? <laughs> <laughs> was that hard? I mean, it's kind of unspoken. It's kind of it's got a grieving quality to it in a lot of what you're writing. Yeah, I, just... I feel like we're all writing with black armbands on in a way yeah. because there's been so little magic, Mike. You do talk actually about a movie we didn't discuss on the show, but that I did really like, um, Hell or High Water, which I forget which of you points up as a sort of the the housing crisis movie. Of yeah, the I think year. that I think that was Mark Harris talking about it. Yeah, Hell or High Water also passed me by early in the year. It came. 
out during that period when I was on leave and wasn't doing this show. And I didn't catch up with it until late in the year. I mean, Hell or High Water was really elbowing its way onto my top 10 list, practically. Talk about taking a form that feels tired and doing something new with it, right? I mean, a Western bank heist movie (laughs) that includes a cop doing his one last job played by Jeff Bridges. The whole thing just seems like it would be so chewed over and that it would be all self-referential and over-familiar. And instead, it's this very funny, very sharply written study of a a bunch of very interesting characters. So I'm I'm really big on him. Have you seen that one, Steve? Not yet. No. I really, I would, I would pitch that to you as, as the magic mic of 2016. There's no stripping in it at all. But it's a guy road movie. But it's a guy road movie that is, it takes a familiar genre and uses it to put forth really interesting economic and social commentary, I think. That and it's also sense. an oh, exciting adventure. Yeah. It's a kind of a cops and robbers story, and it works on that level as well. Plus, it has Chris Pine, who I just think can do no wrong. I love Chris Pine Oh, so my much. God. I can't believe you can tell the Chris's apart, but okay. <laughs> um, they're all just one big blonde Chris to me. No, not the Pine. The Pine stands tall. <laughs> Um, I'm I'm dying for you to see it, Steve. Assigned, and let us know what you think. Done. I'm dying now to see it. Um, Dana, what must we talk about on the show? Not this episode, but future episodes. What movies um, do we have to get to? um, Yeah, what are the big contenders we've missed? Yeah, you know, Movie Club has been great for pointing that up, too, because I'm sort of realizing that the things that, you know, it's like like filtering for gold in a river or something, the little nuggets that stay in the sieve at the the end of Movie Club will be the movies that we have to talk about. And I think Verhoeven's L is, is clearly one of them. I'm pretty sure that Isabelle Huppert will be nominated for a Best Actress Award. And a curious thing about that movie is that it's really sort of treated as Isabelle Huppert's movie when people talk about it, even though she's collaborating with this director with a huge, long history. Um, I sort of went to see it more with excitement about Verhoeven than about Huppert, but but I think it's really her that makes the whole thing work to the extent it does. But it's the kind of movie that you could have a heated, knockdown, drag-out discussion about because it's so full of controversial, hot-button things and it's it's somewhat unclear what Verhoeven is saying about those things and sometimes her performance seems to be undercutting what he's trying to say so that is a complex one that we should definitely get to another one that I know Bill Gabiri is going to be talking about in his coming up post which I believe he's typing away at right now is Silence Martin Scorsese's Silence which to me it was on my it was a runner up on my top 10 list and I would say that Silence it seems to be coming from somewhere at a completely oblique angle to the rest of the movies of the year or any year that it has maybe because it's been in development in Scorsese's mind for so long he's been trying to make or thinking about making this movie for almost 30 years it has this feeling of 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 sort of quiet presence, you know, moving in like it's like the movie itself is this kind of hooded monk just walking down a red carpet. You know, it's a strange it's a strange addition to to the end of the movie year. And it feels and I don't say this at all because I want it to be. I hope Scorsese will live long and make many more movies. But it has the contemplative sort of um, digging deep feel of a last movie as if he were gathering everything he had thought about and worked on for his whole career and condensed it into this one you know, very long and very heavy, but I think very beautiful film. I'm excited to see that one. And then just the post that went up this morning to start, I believe, round three. I write the first post of each each round. And uh, and I did a little reflection on Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher because I happened to be writing the day that Debbie Reynolds died and just couldn't stop watching old clips of the two of them and thinking about their relationship and thinking about what that mother-daughter relationship sort of meant for the, the progress or lack of progress of, of women in Hollywood. So that was what I wrote about for today's post. Magnificent. Okay, it's Slate's Movie Club uh, as hosted more or less by Dana Stevens. It's up on slate.com. Go check it out. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our program where we in- endorse. Dana Stevens, what do you have? 
okay, I don't want this to be a sad endorsement, even though it is an endorsement about someone who just died, because he was someone who lived a very long life. He lived to the age of 90. And it's John Berger, the art critic and writer, and I don't know what you would call him, the kind of aesthetic thinker who wrote this book called Ways of Seeing in 1972 that was made into a television series, a four-part series. And that I don't know if this is still the case, but was very, very frequently assigned in sort of undergraduate classes on on philosophy, art, aesthetics, etc. Um, so Ways of Seeing is great, and the book is wonderful. You can see the four-part series on YouTube, but that's not actually my endorsement. My endorsement is this new film made in 2016 called John Berger or the Art of Looking, and it's a, just an hour-long documentary that visits Berger in his studio and interviews him about his life and about art and work, and he's 90 years old and incredibly sharp and fascinating. And uh, yeah, if you want to get a sense of, of what it is to be a smart guy at the end of a very long, full, rich, interesting life, um, watch John Berger or The Art of Looking. You can find it on, on YouTube and on Open Culture, I believe, as well. We'll put some links on the show page. That sounds so interesting. I've never read any of it, and it sounds so uh, up my alley. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it really is all about, um, yeah, stuff that you would love because it's about design and kind of scrambling one's uh, perception to see in a new way. Cool. Uh, agreed on all counts. Um, Julia, what do you have? I would like to endorse a unlikely musical. I feel like one of my complaints about La La Land is people saying, the musical, it's back. Finally, it's being reclaimed. And it is true that Hollywood doesn't make original musicals that often. But I also feel like the musical is a form that is so durable and wonderful that people reclaim it creatively often. And one such wonderful reclamation was Once More with Feeling, which is the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the show created by Joss Whedon in the early aughts. Uh, and it is a show that solves the problem of why are they singing? If I recall correctly, I think it's that singing in the episode is a kind of truth serum and his curse upon them all is that they, when they open their mouths, they will sing. And when they sing, they will tell the truth instead of uh, the various comfortable fictions that punctuate modern life uh, in in uh, Sunnydale. And the episode is beautifully made. The songs are excellent and earwormy as hell uh, in, in terms of my complaints about La La Land's. And Joss Whedon wrote them all himself, which, again, you know, it, it's like, it's astonishing. It's so good. Uh, and the episode also sits within the season that it's in at a moment where everyone has a secret they're concealing from all the other characters. And so it lands within the arc of the season as this extraordinary emotional catharsis where every single character has some built-up tension that they release in a perfect, memorable song, some funny, some poignant, some heartbreaking. Uh, it is a great musical, like just a great, pure musical. And uh, if you are a Buffy fan who hasn't watched it in a while, I heartily recommend you go back and do it. If you've never watched a lick of the show, I pop it in and give it a try. If it's not your bag, you can turn it off. I'm not sure if they would land, if it would land as well if you weren't somewhat familiar with the characters and the various, you know, traumatic uh, demon reflecting experiences that they're going through. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's great. It's great. As modern reclamation, as unlikely modern reclamations of the musical format go, I think that one is hard to top. All right. I'm going to do a quickie and a longie. Um, the quickie is uh, Young Marble Giants, a band from the 80s that I'd completely forgotten about. A friend of mine put me back onto their masterpiece album, Colossal Youth. A masterpiece might be a little strong. It's a great album. Colossal Youth by Young Marble Giants. Any fans out there, um, love to hear from you. 
uh, about them. Um, I'm really unfamiliar with the rest of their oeuvre, but um, <laughs> but I really like uh, I really like that record. Um, okay, the l- slightly longy one is um, uh, I'm endorsing Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies, and the Birth of the New Hollywood. Dana Stevens, who wrote that book, Mr. Mark Harris. Mr. Mark Harris, I it's funny. I, it, a part of my book, should it ever see the light of day, um, involves uh, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, as many many um, uh, books about movies, especially from the sixties on, um, are or include a section on Bonnie and Clyde. But anyway, and, and then I came across Harris's book, never heard of him. I did this was year, a couple of years ago at least. And uh, the book is wonderful. I mean, I was just basically going to strip mine it for quotes and nuggets and anecdotes and realized it was a book with an, you know, an, like, I mean, I, I, integrity is like, it just sounds so condescending to say it. I mean, it was just like a vastly better book than I expected or the one that I was writing. And it's just, he's a really, really gifted writer and thinker and um, and storyteller. And it's it's just one of the better mo- books about movies. Um that I've read recently. I mean, just the quickly the setup is that, you know, in the 1960s, the Hollywood studio system, which had been having troubles ever since they had sort of deintegrated their business, they had been forced to sell off its most lucrative piece, which was the theaters, um, started having really serious money troubles in the, in the sixties when young audiences really weren't interested in John Wayne movies or Mary Poppins and, uh, television, which had been cannibalizing them for decades really really caught up with them and um and then there was essentially a revolution a revolution in, in hollywood movie making fit to the revolution of um uh, youth revolution and taste revolution that was happening elsewhere and bonnie and clyde being one of the big ones and he, and he uses the 1968 academy awards which had um very sort of symbolic nominees that year to tell that story um and uh tells it so beautifully it's really a terrific book i also i heartily heartily second the um uh, endorsement of him as a Twitter presence. He's fantastic. His more recent book called Five Came Back is also a great piece oh, of film cool. history in that same vein. And it's about five different Hollywood directors who had experiences in World War II, who mo- mostly making propaganda uh, films or in some way working on the production side and how those experiences affected their work when they got back to Hollywood. Glorious. Okay. Well, Mark Harris, now that we've licked you all over like little puppies, you have to come on our show. Definitely. Um, Anyway, it's a terrific book, uh, Pictures from a Revolution. Check it out. Dana, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. There is a diverse roster of shows, many like ours, many unlike ours. Please check them out at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julian Turner, Dana Stevens, and John Swansburg, that hump face, I'm Steve Metcalf. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I'll we'll see you next week then. It got fucking Irish. Oh my I, can god! You make, can you make the drive down from Quincy? Can you do it in forty-five minutes? That's better. Irish, your Irish accent is a little bit better. Or maybe I just can't hear how bad it All is. All my accents sound Indian, so I I, I feel for you, Steve. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next week. Every single night, the same arrangement. I go out and fight the fight. Still, I always feel the strangest estrangement. Nothing here is real. Nothing here is right. I've been making shows of trading blows Just hoping no one knows That I've been going through the motions Walking through the part Nothing seems to penetrate my heart
kind of righteous. Now I find I'm wavering. 